to see each and every one of you this morning, um, especially if you're visiting with us. Maybe you haven't been here but for a short period of time, or maybe you haven't been here in a long time, but you're back in visiting with us today. Um, you live in another city, another place. It's so great uh, to see familiar faces, great to see people that we've lived life with um, in years past, and just a, a blessing to have you all with us this morning. So thank you for being here. Um, we're going to Lift the name of Jesus on high today. You know, that's really why we come together on Sunday mornings to meet together as a church is to make great the name of Jesus, to, to lift his name up. Even last week we talked about we're not trying to make a, a great church. We're trying to be a church that makes Jesus great. And there's a difference in those things. And um, our purpose is for Jesus himself. And so this morning, I hope you came here to meet to Jesus and to meet for Jesus. Uh, ultimately, I hope that that's your motivation. If it wasn't when you walked in, I hope it certainly is by the time you leave, is to meet to Jesus, to lift his name on high. Um, this morning, we're continuing um, our study in the Gospel of Luke. So the book of Luke, and we're in chapter 5. Um, we'll pick up in verse... Um, 27, and we'll have a good time this morning in this. Before we get into it, I want to lay out a couple of things that we've gotten to to this point, um, just so that we remember and and understand where Luke has brought us um, to this point, especially if you haven't been with us the last number of weeks. Um, We want you to, to kind of have a context for what we're getting into today. So the purpose of Luke's gospel is, you know, he's writing so that Theophilus can be certain that his faith is in the right one. He can be certain of his, of his faith. Um, and so he lays out, you know, the coming of Jesus, you know, his, you know, before his birth, the prophecies concerning him, the birth of Christ, and then um, into his, his public ministry, the beginning of his public ministry, where he's baptized, where he goes into the wilderness um, to be tempted for 40 days, and then when he comes out of that and really begins his public ministry. um, And he's setting a stage here. And so when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he goes back to his hometown, he preaches in the synagogue, and he reads there from Isaiah chapter 61. And so you'll find this in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord or to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so that's his purpose. And so you see this in Jesus of, of why he came and he's, he's claiming that he is the one that has been anointed. He's, he's making a clear claim among the Jewish people to be the Messiah, to be the Savior. They understand what he's getting at, and they're in, uh, in somewhat of awe at his, his words. 
But then they turn on him very quickly when he begins to prophesy against them and against their lack of faith. And they actually drive him to the edge of a cliff to throw him over it to kill him. But it's not Jesus' time to die. And so Luke then, he sets out to show the authority and power that Jesus has. And he starts there and he continues with that for a while. And so he has the authority and power, Jesus has the authority and power just to walk through the midst of the crowd. Doesn't need anybody else's help. He just walks through the midst and there's nothing they can do to touch him. That's his authority and his power. Then we see he has the authority and power to cast out demons, the authority and power to heal the sick, the authority and power to call people to follow him as disciples, the authority and power to make someone clean, and the authority and power to forgive sins. We saw that last week um, in the life of the paralytic man whose friends brought him to the house that Jesus was in, teaching in, and there was no way because of the crowd to get near, and so they went up onto the roof and cut through and lowered their friend down, and Jesus forgave that man's sins and did that before he healed him of his physical need. And really the physical need there being healed was really just to show his authority and his power to take care of the man's spiritual need, the need of, his, of the forgiveness of sins, which is what every person needs. Every person needs their sins forgiven. And there's ultimately only one who can do that. And so this week we continue, we'll continue on looking at that authority and power of Jesus as we finish uh, Luke chapter 5. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll read um, beginning in verse 27. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. We thank you just uh, that we can be here um, as friends and as family, some um, Lord, who we're just so glad to see come back and, and spend a little time with us. We ask you bless their lives and bless their families, Lord, we pray. Lord, we're, we're thankful to be here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. We're thankful that we can look into your word as our authoritative God for who you are, for what you've done, for your plan of redemption, God. And it's an authority for our lives. And we, this morning, we pray that you would help us, wherever we are in our, in our walk, Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves before you and to understand that we are small and that you are great, oh God. So we pray that you would help us this morning. We pray that you'd be with the kids upstairs, that they would know more this morning of your greatness, God, and of your love, of your power. And that from a young age, they would love you and follow you. Lord Jesus, move in each one of our hearts today and take us to where you want us to be. Lord, we're thankful that you meet us where, you are, where we are, but Lord, we're, we're also thankful that you don't want us to stay there. And so Jesus, continue to work in our hearts this morning, we pray. We ask that you do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Okay, so let's read verse 27. We'll read through verses, verse 32, and it says, After this... He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, 
Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let's stop there and, and, and dig into this and look into this um, a little bit. As we see here the call of Levi, we also know him as Matthew. Ultimately, he's the one who writes the Gospel of Matthew. And so he becomes this very significant person um, in our faith. But who is he when Jesus first meets him? You know, he's a tax collector, and this morning that might, mean, you know, might not mean that much to you. It means he's, you know, he has a job, he's employed, um, you know, he's a male, he's, you know, this is who he is. Okay, I get that. But we need to understand you know, the context that at this time, Israel is dominated by the Roman Empire. They're under the authority of the Roman Empire. And those who are collecting taxes are collecting them for the Roman Empire. And so he's a, a Jewish man who is viewed as many as one who is working with the enemy, working for the enemy, and one who is a traitor to his you know, own people. Uh, and the tax collectors had a terrible reputation because... They tended to be pretty wealthy because of the extra taxes they would collect. They would say, you know, the government says you owe 100. Roman government says you own 100 when the person only owed 50. And then they'd keep the other 50 for themselves. And so they became wealthy by cheating their own people and by charging them more tax than what they should have been charging them. And they had a favored status among, you know, the Roman, um, the Roman people. And so you can see how those who were zealous for Israel, who are looking for any opportunity uh, at insurrection, any opportunity for you know, the Roman government to be overthrown, would be against, you know, would look poorly on someone who got wealthy and made their living at the oppression of their people. You can see how there would be some, some anger you know, at that. Yet Jesus sees him and says, follow me. Those are just the two words that we have recorded there. It's just two words. Follow me. He doesn't go into this long explanation. Now, we understand, you know, Matthew has some idea of what has happened to this point and an understanding of, you know, who Jesus, somewhat of an understanding of who Jesus is. Right at this point, not nearly a full understanding of who Jesus is. But with Jesus' authority and his power, that when he calls Matthew and says, follow me, what is the response? The response is that in the middle of work, he doesn't say, okay, Jesus, wait till, you know, can you wait till I get off shift? Can you wait till I'm done with my job for the day? Immediately, right where he is, right then and there, boom, he leaves his job, and he's not going back to it, and he follows Jesus. Powerful powerful. And then there's this response that he has. It says, Levi gave him a, a great, gave Jesus a great feast in his own house. So, you know, like we said, he's, he's had an opportunity here to accumulate some things for himself. He's got a house large enough to have a bunch of people. He's got a great number of his tax collector friends. And, you know, this is, this is really good for us to see because we see when a person come, really comes to know Jesus and to believe in him, there's that natural desire I want my friends, I want these other people in my life to now have what I have because I have Jesus. And if he can reach me, he can reach them. 
You know, that's the mentality here that you see clearly that Matthew has. It, you know, it doesn't have to be explicitly stated because you can see it clearly in his actions and what he does, inviting all of his friends to come to this great feast that he's going to have for Jesus. And he wants Jesus there to be the center of attention and wants his friends to know Jesus. And you, you don't see Jesus say, well, I'm not coming to your, your party because that's going to hurt my reputation. He's not concerned about that. He's not concerned about the external appearances and how it's going to look to the religious people. He just goes. He goes and he sits there and he, and he interacts with the people and he spends time with them, with these tax collectors and others. And the others are going to be also the sorts of people, also the those who are not looked at favorably by the religious community. So the people who are, quote-unquote, the notorious sinners in the community, the, the people that nobody argues with about whether that person is a sinner or not, are all there. And why is Jesus with these people? Is the question, then, that the scribes and the Pharisees ask, and they're complaining They're complaining to Jesus' disciples about this. Not directly to Jesus here. They know when they go confront Jesus directly, they they usually get shot down pretty quick. So they're kind of complaining to his disciples, why is he doing this? But Jesus, he knows what they're saying. He knows what they're saying about about him, and he, he goes to them and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, a person who says that they're healthy, a person who's, who convinces themselves that they don't have any physical ailments or physical problems isn't going to call the doctor and say, please come help me. Only those who have an understanding of their need are the ones who call the doctor and say, please come help me. And so here we have Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, is he really calling the scribes and Pharisees righteous? In the book of Matthew, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds, though, the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter in. You know, so he under- he's not saying that the- these religious people are okay. But he's making a point about an understanding of one's need. Because the pride in people is what says, I don't need God. The pride in people is what says, I don't need Jesus. I can do this on my own. And that has to be dealt with. Before a person can come to, really come to Jesus, there has to be some humbling of, I need help. I need him. Jesus came for those who are sinners. You know, we kind of, you know, that, that, that word... You know, we in our context, even today, you know, you have people, you know, shaking their finger and saying, this person's a sinner, 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 kind of like the religious people back in this day would have done. And so then because of that, we're afraid to even use the word sinner anymore. Or to say, hey, we're sinners. Or actually, in a conversation, man, you need Jesus. Why? Because you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner too, and so we need Jesus. But we're afraid of uh, the offense of the acknowledgement of being a sinful 
person. But here we see, without that understanding of I'm sinful, that I've offended a holy God, that I'm deserving of God's justice, how can one come to Christ? Because what happens is without that, somebody comes to Jesus just as a, a friend, as a buddy. Somebody there who's like an advisor or a counselor to kind of like help you through things when things get a little tough. But that's not Jesus. He's so much more than that. He's so much more than that. He, I mean, yes, he is friend. Yes, he is those things. But he's so much more than that. He is king and he has authority and he has power and one must submit themselves, must humble themselves before him. That is what is necessary. Don't try to get somebody just to take Jesus as their friend, as their buddy. Because that's wholly inadequate. And it understates who Jesus is in his authority and in his power. It understates the reality that he is God. Now today, what do we do with Jesus' example here of how, you know, he eats and drinks and he's with those who are on the outside of the religious things? What do we do with that example? Because there's still a legalism today that says you can't do that. There's still a legalism today in the religious you know, communities that will judge you and say, if you hang out with those people, then you're, you're wrong to do that. Why would you do that? You're, you're going to make your reputation bad. You're going to make the name of Jesus look bad. Well, here we see Jesus wasn't so concerned about that. Jesus would kick that legalism out. That's not what he wants. So that's on the ones that we can't do that. Don't have that mentality. Don't have that mentality toward, towards other people. Can't have it. That's on the legalistic side. But I also want to talk about a danger that's on the other side, and that's the side of license. Because there are many people who say, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a follower of God. And, you know, I, I need to hang out with these people, so, and I need to be like them to reach them for God. But that's nothing more than an excuse to participate in the sin itself. That's all it is. There's not really a true motivation to reach those people for Jesus. It's a, I just like that life and I want to live it with them. It's a license. It's like a, a you throw the name Jesus on it and then it's a license to sin. It's a license to be excessive with one's drink. It's a license to be excessive uh, with one's words. Not to have a filter. Not to have a godly filter. We see that Jesus was in the world, but he was not of the world. And he actually tells his disciples the same thing. Be in the world, but not of the world. And so if there's that desire, I'm going to go drink with them for the sake of drinking, there's that desire, I'm going to go with, be with them because I enjoy that life. That's just as sinful as legalism. Both are extremely damaging. 
And so how do you know that your motivation is right when you're going to be like, I'm going to go hang out with these people? Well, that's an issue of one's heart. But there's also some indicators how much time is spent in prayer for those people and how much time is spent in prayer for going and spending time with them. And do they know your real purpose? Because there's an authenticity issue at play there. Do they know your real purpose? Because with Jesus, his purpose is clear. He's calling people to repentance. He tells them that. This is it. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is explicit in his mission and in his purpose, and he's not afraid to tell anybody that. He is calling them to a different life because Jesus is meeting them where they are, but he does not want them to stay there. He doesn't want a legalistic religious person to stay a legalistic legalistic religious person. He doesn't want that. He'll meet them where they are in that state of pride and in that state of rules. But he doesn't want to leave that person there. He'll meet the partier where the partier is. But Jesus isn't going to just keep them a partier. He's going to give them a, a, a different perspective on life and eternity. He's going to give them more to live for than just the next party. You know, and, and so that's where we have to come to, to grips with that. Like Jesus loves us and he accepts us and he takes us where we are, but he's also fully intent on changing us. And do we want to, are we willing for that? part of it to take place. Because many people want the acceptance without the understanding and agreement that there's going to be change moving forward. That Jesus changes lives. He does more than just give people you know, an escape from hell. He does more than just forgive our sins. I mean, that's huge, not to be understated in any way. But salvation is more than just being saved from the punishment and the penalty of sin. It's being given a new life and an eternal life and a a life worth living, an abundant and a joyful life. That's what Jesus does. And so he can't leave us where we are. He can't leave you in legalism. And he can't leave you in license. But his desire is for us to become in every way like he is. That's what he's moving us toward. To be more and more conformed to his image. And why is that? Because way back in the garden with Adam and Eve and God made human beings in his image and then, you know, were marred because of sin... And yes, we still bear with us the image of God, but that image is tainted by sin. It is corrupted by sin. And Jesus being born of a virgin and being fully God and fully man, he is the you know, expressed image of God. And he is, in his image of God, now what we will be when we're fully made, you know, changed and made like him. But while we're still here on that earth, that change is already supposed to be taking place, that process. 
that we call sanctification is already being in process. It's like, so yes, past tense, when you believe in Jesus, you have been saved from the penalty. But even now, you've been saved from the penalty of sin, but even now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are being saved, present tense, from the power of sin in your life. You are being saved. And one day we're going to be saved from the presence of Future tense, we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. And altogether, our sinful flesh will be done away with. Praise God. But here and now, this is our part of participation with God in our lives being changed and us being more made into the image of God as we see expressed in Jesus Christ. And so that's our goal, and that's our, you know, our purpose and our priority is we, to see Jesus and to be more like him and to share him and to take him to others as Jesus didn't wait for Matthew to show up at one of his meetings, but he went and found Matthew. He was on the lookout. And he initiated. And that tells us something as well about our roles in people's lives. To be looking, to be initiating, to be sharing. To be calling people to something better and and higher. We have to remove that bunker mentality that says, you know, I want to be safe from all sin and I want my family to be safe from all sin. So I'm just going to hunker down with other followers of Jesus and let that be that. We have, to, we have to fight that mentality. And we have to fight that license because every one of us, because we still carry on our sinful flesh, has a desire for sinful things to some degree. It's in your flesh to wage war against the spirit that is within you. It's in your flesh to desire the things that do not please God. And so how do we fight against that? We have to live in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of our Father. We have to live in the walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And we have to do that. You know, the goal is that we're doing that consistently, that we're doing that every day, that we're not taking days off where we just let the world and our flesh kind of go its way, but that we're intentional people. Striving for Jesus. So let's move on, verses 33 through 39. It says, And they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else a new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old 
is better. So let's, um, let's break this down a little bit and go back to that question about, you know, the fasting and the prayers. And, you know, they're asking Jesus, you know, the disciples of John do that all the time. And the disciples of the Pharisees, you know, those who are the Pharisees do that. The Pharisees do that, basically. But your disciples eat and drink. Why is that? And notice Jesus' response. He's basically, he's given us a lot of deep stuff here. A lot of deep stuff. That if we unpack it, it's just, it's huge. Because he calls himself, he's making himself this analogy where he's ultimately talking about himself as the bridegroom. And so he's given this picture of a wedding feast. And so you've got the bridegroom, you've got the bridegroom's friends. And he says, hey, it's supposed to be a time of celebration. And in this time of celebration, are you going to ask people to then stop celebrating and to fast? Like, you know, that wouldn't be appropriate. It's not appropriate at a wedding. You know, you go to somebody's wedding and, you know, you're, you know they, they have you know, food and everything there. And you're like, eh, sorry, none for me. I got some, you know, some stuff I'm, I'm talking, you know, to God about. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to eat your food. I'm not going to eat your cake. I'm not going to hang out. I'll just kind of be over here on the corner um, with my prayers. That, that's not exactly a loving thing to do. There's a time and a place, right? There's a time and a place. And so Jesus is saying, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But then he says there's going to come a day when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. So he's really talking about himself. He is the bridegroom. He's with them for a temporary period of time. And it's a a look forward to the cross. Really, it's a look forward to the cross. And that Jesus is going to be taken from them. But there's something really interesting with that. Jesus is the bridegroom. Who's the bride? You know, it's pretty clear throughout the scriptures, you know, the rest of the New Testament, you know, the church is the bride, right? But he's setting something up there that things are going to be different. It's a, it's a little bit of a picture in a very subtle way. Something is coming. Things are going to change. And then in the parable that he gives, he amplifies that reality. All right? He amplifies that reality. It says, he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. So he's saying, okay, imagine you've got a tear in your, in your jeans, and you're, you've had your jeans for a while. If you take just a new piece of fabric and sew it on there, when you wash those jeans, what's going to happen? Well, that new piece of fabric is going to shrink because it hasn't gone through that process yet. And when it shrinks, it's going to tear. It's going to make a, even a bigger hole. It's going to make more of a problem. And it's going to be obvious that you just tried to patch a hole there because it's not a similar-looking fabric. And really what he's getting at there is this old covenant. Everything under the law of Moses, that's going out the door. That's leaving and something new is coming. Something new is coming. 
And he's making a point there that this new doesn't match with the old, and it's not a patch for the old. It, it's actually not compatible with the old. They, can't, they don't work together. Not compatible. And he continues that with this illustration about new wine into old wineskins. New wine into old wineskins. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else a new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. Well, when you put new wine into a wineskin, there's that process of fermentation and there's that expansion and that pressure and that causes that new wineskin, that, you know, that animal skin to, to stretch. But once that's happened, you know, you pour it out and you use that old wine. You can't put new wine back into that old wine skin because it's already reached its, you know, its maximum point of elasticity. Like, it's not going to stretch further. It's just going to burst if you put new into it. So you can't do this. And so there, you can't put the new covenant into the old covenant. It has to be... You can't put Jesus, you know, into the Old Covenant. He fulfills the Old Covenant, but he's not part of the Old Covenant. He fulfills it. But notice he says this, and this is really powerful. He says, no one having drunk old wine has a desire for the new wine or immediately desires the new wine, for he says the old is better. Well, you look at that and you go, well, that makes sense, right? I mean, you don't hear people being like, well, let me tell you, I got this bottle of 2015 that is so much better than your 1865, you know, or whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You know, we view it as the older wine, you know, it's better, it's more mature, it's, you know, it's gone, it's had its, its process. And who that has that is just going to go, oh, give me the 2015, I'll take that instead. Not in addition to, but as a complete, you know, like, we're just trading here. The people are going to be resistant to do that. Well, I got a couple of thoughts with that. And again, it's, it's that idea that Jesus is saying here, people like their traditions. People had gotten comfortable being under the law. And while you know, the law and the prophets pointed them to a, something new, a, a new Messiah who's going to, you know, God's going to write his law in their hearts, and it's, it's, a, it's a better than the old, yet the people still had grown in such being used to and affection for their old traditions that they didn't want what the new was going to offer, the, Jesus the Messiah with his new covenant. So there's not a desire for the new one for Jesus and his new covenant. Because people think the old is better. But I want to remind us of the first miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding feast in Cana, and everybody said, wow, what is this? Remember Jesus turned the water to wine. Everybody said, what is this? They saved the best for last, which is opposite of what people would do at a feast. Once people had had some, they become less particular, and their palates are less 
you know, able to distinguish. And you can put out the stuff that's not as good and people are just as happy. But that's not what Jesus did. He put out the very best because he had made it. But how old was it? A few minutes. It was a few minutes old when he made it and it was better than anything they could have ever had. You know, he might have just been showing off and made the best wine ever made. So, you know, there's that assumption that the old and the old tradition was better and the Mosaic law was better because how could you top Moses and the prophets? How could you top Moses and the prophets? Well, there's only way to top Moses, one way to do that. Jesus. Jesus is better. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you see that throughout. You know, as the author of Hebrews lays out, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron, the first high priest. Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And the one who's better makes a better covenant. And so he lays that out there again and again, that he is better. And just because, I mean, we know Jesus, you know, Christ has always existed, but coming, putting on human flesh, just because he's entered the scene right here at this point in time, as we're reading in the Gospel of Luke, doesn't mean that he's not far superior. Because we've seen his authority to do what the, the law really couldn't do. Because the main purpose of the law was, you know, the, the ceremonial cleansings. It was the ceremonial cleansings, and it was the, it was, you know, the, the forgiveness for the, for the, the um, covering for the sins done in omission, for the mistakes that were made. But even under the old law, when you committed a deliberate sin, there wasn't an intentional like. There wasn't anything in the, in the law, the system of the law, that could help you. You only had one thing to do, and that was just to throw yourself at the mercy of God and to beg for forgiveness. But there wasn't anything you could, there wasn't anything you could do in terms of going to the temple and saying, well, I'm going to sacrifice this, you know, five lambs instead of one, and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. No, for the intentional acts, there was, there was nothing that the system of the law could help you with. But with Jesus, such a superior covenant, because he gave himself as a sacrifice once for all sin, for all time. Done. And there aren't those same qualifications about sins of omission or you know, mistakes that were made versus deliberate acts. We don't have those distinctions anymore. Now, we have to be careful that we don't take liberty with that and just go, well, now, you know, everything can be covered, so I can just, man, if that's your attitude, I don't know if you've ever met Jesus. Because that's not the attitude of people in the Scripture that we see meet Jesus we see changed lives and a changed desire. And yes, there's still sin. Yes, there's still mistakes. But there's, 
you don't find this attitude of, you know, privilege to where now I can just do what I want because, you know, Jesus is going to cover me. That should never enter into our, our thought processes. You know, Paul does address it. I mean, certainly we wouldn't be the first to have ever thought such a thing. But should we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. But in view of God's grace, you know, we're to, to set ourselves, our hearts and our affections, and our desires toward God and toward his desires for our lives. But I, I encourage you this morning to examine your own life and your own heart and say, you know, where are you still trying to impose the old covenant into your new covenant life with Jesus? Because it still trickles its way into people's lives, and it still trickles its way into churches. I mean, can, can, we, can we free some people this morning? Can we free some people this morning to understand, you know, Sometimes people need to be freed and understand that Jesus is our mediator and he's our great high priest and you don't need an intermediary. Whether the person wears a collar or not, many people are still looking to another person of, you go to God on my behalf. Well, certainly we can go to one another in prayer, but we're not going, you're not going to a spiritual superhero. You can go to one another in prayer, but don't let that substitute for you going via your high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to the Father with your own boldness to find grace and help in your time of need. Don't let that substitute. Can we free ourselves this morning that we don't need altars because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice That he died on, uh, you know, he died on that altar of the cross, and so we're not making a sacrifice. Even this morning, as we take the bread and the cup, we're not take, we're not making a sacrifice. We're remembering a sacrifice that was done on our behalf once and for all. Jesus isn't like those old priests that had to go every year on the Day of Atonement, making atonement for their own sins and for the sins of the people, and again, limited in its scope of sins. But Jesus went once and for all and gave himself. Even in your finances, you're not under an, uh, an Old Testament tithe. You're not. You're not. Now you can argue, wait, well there was Abraham and there was Melchizedek and Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek before the law of Moses was given. And you can talk about Jesus telling the scribes and the Pharisees, you tithe them, you know, the mint, like even your herbs, you tithe off of that. Like, that's good, but don't forget X, Y, and Z. But again, even in Luke 5, we we saw Jesus cleanse a man from, from leprosy and told him to go and, you know, present himself at the temple and to pay what he was supposed to pay at the temple but why does Jesus tell him to do that? As a testimony to them of his own authority and power, but also at, until Jesus dies on the cross, the old covenant was still in effect for the Jewish people and for those who had 
were proselytized, those who had converted to Judaism. They're still under that system. But once Jesus died on the cross, there's a distinct change. And so now it's not so simple as just doing a math equation and going, well, here's a tenth. Because when Jesus changes your heart, he changes it to be a generous person. And so you stop thinking about things in that way and start thinking about things in terms of, God, this is all yours. What do you want me to do with it? How do you want me to be a steward of it? But sometimes you betray yourself if you write on your check, tithe, and you're putting yourself under an Old Testament system that Jesus freed you from. Jesus died on the cross so you wouldn't be under those rules and regulations and you don't have to go through ceremonial washings and different things to to be here this morning. And we don't bring in a lamb in front of all of us this morning and slit its throat and pour the blood out and sprinkle it all over everything in here. We don't have to do that because Jesus was the perfect lamb of God sacrificed for our sins. So what we're called to this morning is to follow Jesus. When he's called you, follow me. How are we following are becoming more like him. And when he says that the f- friends of the bridegroom are going to fast and pray when he's gone, are we people who fast and pray? Because, <laughs> yes, he is with us, but in the physical sense, he has gone away. He will return. And when he says that the new wine has to be put into the new wineskins, are you still trying to take Jesus and put him into an old religious tradition? Are you still trying to put him into being part of the law? Or taking things from the law and adding them on to Jesus and to your walk with Jesus? But Jesus has called us to something higher into something better because people will tell you that the old is better. But what Jesus made, the wine that he made, far superior to anything else. Far superior to anything else. And so whenever anything tries to get in the way and substitute what Jesus did on the cross for us, that's got to go. If it interferes with what Jesus did on the cross for us, any of our our systems, our organization, our you know, whatever it is that gets in the way of Jesus needs to go. Whatever sins in our in our heart that hinders us from fully worshiping him, it's gotta go. Whatever pride whatever self-importance, it needs to leave. Send it packing on its way. Because when we meet together, I hope that when you leave here this morning or in any morning, that it doesn't matter who preached and it doesn't matter who shared in open time and it doesn't matter who led worship, you know, led us in the music and all these things because we met to Jesus 
that we met to Jesus, that we lifted his name on high, that we made him great, that we gave him his proper place, that we lifted him up, and that we met to him and for him. That that's what matters. And so as you take the bread and cup this morning, and remember what Jesus has done for you in your life, the call is to put him highest, and the call is to put him center. He is to be it. And so for those of you who are somewhat from the, from the past, you know that we've always, we've always taken communion, you know, every Sunday that we've existed, we've taken the bread and the cup. But a few things have changed. You know, we used to, you know, after the message, we just have some set songs, and those would be the songs, and, you know, people would take the bread and cup during that time, and, you know, we'd have our announcements and, you know, go on. Now we have... Uh, an open time, and really as you read the scriptures, it's, it's a more biblical way how the early church, you know, met and were instructed to meet, you know, with, you know, one of you is going to bring us a song and a psalm and a teaching and these things, and your spiritual gifts are going to be used for the glory of Jesus and for the benefit of all. And if there's a shift that happens in the church as a whole, in my lifetime, before I die, can we move from being a you know an observational churches to participatory churches? We're going to fully grow the body of Christ and see the full expression of the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit among us and through us. It's a necessity, and we know that those of you who came along. Once we started doing that, how much your lives have benefited and how much you've grown through that, through what you've, what you've shared and what you've received. And so we value that. So in, that, in this time, it's appropriate to pray. It's appropriate to read scripture. It's appropriate to share testimony, to um, just share what, what God has, has taught you. But here's the guidelines. We have to have guidelines for this, otherwise we're in trouble. It needs to be led by the Spirit. Not, you know, this is what I want to talk about, or this is my hobby horse, or this is my theological thing, or whatever it is. It needs to be led by the Spirit. It needs to focus us on Jesus. It needs to turn us to Jesus. It needs to help us to see him more clearly, help us to to just focus on him or to worship him. It needs to be towards Jesus. And it needs to edify the whole body. So again, this isn't the time for your theological thing or for your social issue or for your personal prayer request. We have time for all those things in other times. Again, there's a time and a place where different things are appropriate. But this time is for Jesus. The point is to Jesus, especially at the beginning of it. Toward the end, we have a little more freedom in how things go. But at the beginning, we certainly want... It's to drive us to our knees with Jesus lifted high. Amen? So think about that as you participate this morning, whether you do so publicly or, yes, publicly as, you know, but if you if you're like want to pray or request a song or 
read verses or, or talk about them or anything like that. Make sure that it does those things. And we'll all be blessed you know, by it. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll have that time. Musicians will get us started with one song I think that they have ready. So, Heavenly Father, we just love you and praise you this morning. We thank you for the privilege to worship you again. And as we come and we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember that, Father, you sent your son for this purpose. We thank you, Jesus, that the bread represents your body. It was broken for us. And the cup represents your blood that was shed for us once for all time. We're thankful, Lord, that though we can come and remember time and time again that you only had to go through it once, Jesus. Because we still cannot even begin to comprehend the cost. Give us even better understanding of that today, we pray. Mm -hmm. May I turn our hearts towards you and help us to focus our lives.